and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Arf, arf! <laughs> That's two arfs mean yes. Or wait, or is it two arfs mean no? Arf, arf! Two arfs mean yes. This is episode three in our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, and today we'll be turning our attention to two television series that attempted to replicate the Indiana Jones experience for the small screen. This gives us a rare opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, Vintage Network Television. I love it. I know that storytelling (laughs) has evolved in the cable and streaming eras, but there is something about classic broadcast network TV that I just love. You know, there is something to be said for knowing that you're television. And what I mean by that is having episodes with a story that completes itself while still allowing an ongoing character or saga to happen and not giving me um, piecemeal stuff. Everyone thinks they're Charles Dickens. Yeah. But most people don't dole it out like Dickens did. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a high bar to be sure. But like, and look, I love some shows that are essentially serialized novels with no act breaks. Absolutely. And they're never propelling me along. But goddamn. I love me some TV, too. Some real TV. I do. You know, I, <laughs> I think some of it was that for a long time, TV was very, uh, you know, they, they, they were limitations on TV. Some of it came out of technological limitations that they couldn't do serialized storytelling outside of soap operas and that kind of thing. And, and then once the technology changed to allow for more serialized storytelling, it sort of overcorrected for a long time. And I'm hoping eventually it comes back where you have a balance. Like, cause I like both. It totally is. I, I, I guarantee now that every streaming service is essentially going to showing ads. Yeah. This whole like industry obsession with, well, if you want to write your spec, you should just don't do act breaks because it's, it's so much cooler and cleaner and you don't have to worry, but act breaks aren't just effective for showing advertisements. Right. Although they totally are. They are. But they, a good act out should essentially do what a feature film does, which is it ends a sequence mm-hmm. and ma- gives you something so that you want to continue. Absolutely. And when people don't do act outs, I think when some folks complain, and by some folks, I mean Rob Lamorgis, about <laughs> streaming uh, episodes sometimes, sometimes, this isn't everything, but sometimes feeling like a slog, I, I think a lack of act outs in these things is at least at least part of uh, it's in the mix. I agree mix. 100%. Oh, absolutely 100%. Also, television at this time had a much faster turnaround from feature films and as such could jump on trends more quickly than movies could. And we saw this... I in... think it was the cocaine. It was the cocaine <laughs> Well, there that might have been fast. that, too. Yes. Well, yeah. we saw this in our Get Me Another Star Wars series where one of the first projects to come out in the wake of that film was the ABC television series Battlestar Galactica. In this case, we have two competing Indiana Jones-esque series, both of which debuted a little over a year after Raiders of the Lost Ark was released in theaters. In fact, the two shows premiered within two days of one another in September of 1982. The first of these was ABC's Tales of the Gold Monkey. Come on, love with 
pursue the high road to adventure. Come on, baby. Join Jake Cutter, a pilot with nerves of steel. Get out! A thirst for danger. Ah! He's a reckless soldier of fortune. Persuasive charmer. Come on! Die. Jake! Oh, no! Defying death with every fall. Legendary mysteries deep in the South Pacific plunge Jake Cutter into a whirlpool of action and intrigue. Ah! A brand new series of daring and courage. The Gold Monkey, Wednesdays this fall. Tales of the Gold Monkey was created by Donald Belisario, someone who I consider to be one of the giants of network television. He wrote for series like Kojak, Quincy M.E., Baba Black Sheep, and Battlestar Galactica before creating Magnum P.I. with Glenn Larson. After Tales of the Gold Monkey, he created Airwolf and Quantum Leap, as well as the long-running series JAG, which beget the even longer-running series NCIS and its associated spin-offs. Now, Chris, it's amazing that you brought this up, because I, I also have a deep love of Donald Belisario. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> or at least his work. Yeah. But uh, while watching this, and, then a, and the next one as well, but especially this, uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey, I have in my notes that it feels it's it doesn't just owe a debt to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It felt like a Baba Black Sheep episode to oh, yeah. me in many ways, just with the way yes. I, I, it, it's indescribable, but that kind of, you know, Hogan's Heroes-esque, yeah. Kelly's Heroes-esque kind of stuff. But, you know, obviously this is not a multicam sitcom. It is a single camera drama D, uh, a, a funny drama. I don't know how you'd say it. It's just a lighthearted adventure dramedy, you know, drama. It's a lighthearted adventure drama. Uh, for for the kids out there, Baba Black Sheep was a show created by Stephen J. Canal, another one of the giants that was about a kind of thrown together World War II uh, air, aerial combat unit. And Donald Belisario was one of the writers on that show. And I think there is a lot of the DNA of of Baba Black Sheep in Tales of the Gold Monkey, for sure. Yeah, And that's a mid-70s show, so yeah. I was not seeing that when it was on the air, but it was in syndication quite a bit. And uh, I think, little known fact about Baba Black Sheep, they had uh, only one piece of stock footage that they just reused yeah. over and over <laughs> for the airplane. No. Yeah, absolutely. That's untrue, but it's emotionally true. It's emotionally true. <laughs> Tales of the Gold Monkey was originally developed by Donald Belisario in the late 70s, but ABC initially passed on it in 1979, feeling that no one would want to watch an adventure show set in the 1930s. That feeling quickly changed after the success of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And while the show was definitely greenlit to take advantage of the success of Raiders, Belisario's inspiration was actually a 1939 film entitled Only Angels Have Wings, starring Cary Grant and Gene Arthur. That film is about an air freight company located in a remote South American town. There's also distinct overtones of both Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon. So like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, Belisario was influenced by the films of the 30s. Although apparently, uh, as the story goes, uh, 
the studio pushed for more Raiders-like elements on Tales of the Gold Monkey as the show went along. Unsurprising. 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 The series stars Stephen Collins, Jeff McKay, Caitlin Doheny, John Calvin, Marta Dubois, John Fujikoa, and in the pilot, Ron Moody as Bon Chance Louis. Uh, he was replaced by Roddy McDowell in the role when the, the show was picked up to series. Who played Jack? Who played Jack? <laughs> I want to know. Jack Come was just on. Jack. The dog's got a goddamn eye patch. I want to know. Who played it? Well, it's interesting. I, I actually found online the series Bible for Tales of the Gold Monkey. Really? As we get into it, there's all sorts of interesting oh. stuff about the way they conceived the character of Jack. Jack is a one-eyed dog. He is Jake Cutter's one-eyed dog, and he is uh, he's, he's just great. He is fantastic. And I think a few episodes ago, we were talking about, oh, you don't want to name your characters too similarly if you can help it. Or... You have a character named Jake with a dog named Jack. Exactly. <laughs> He's style Belisario. He can do what he wants. Hell yeah. Tales of the Gold Monkey revolves around Jake Cutter, a former Flying Tigers pilot who now flies his own cargo plane called Cutter's Goose. Alongside Jake are his mechanic Corky, who is wrestling with alcoholism, and his one-eyed Jack Russell Terrier, Jack, with whom Jake carries on full conversations. Uh, the dog barks once for yes and twice for no, which gives him the same degree of communication as the injured Captain Pike in the Star Trek episode, The Menagerie. Except sometimes one bark means yes and two means no. Uh, one, sometimes two means yes and one means no. It's unclear which is actually the case. Uh, and according to later episodes of the show, Jack also speaks Spanish and Japanese. Hey, a trilingual pooch. Uh, well, I guess no, quadlingual. Quadlingual, because, because he speaks dog. Yeah, dog. So yeah, he's a, he's a polyglot. Is that the word? <laughs> that I'm, is uh, indeed, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I would also like to say, and it was the, the mechanic, it's uh, what? Cody or Corky. Corky. So I, I just wanted to say the mechanic Corky struggles with alcoholism like I struggle putting on socks, which is to say not that much. Uh, this is this a is like a, he, he, it's a little Uncle Billy. It's a wonderful life where he's <laughs> well, yeah. just kind of like, yeah, oh, drunk again. <laughs> I'm forgetting stuff because I'm so drunk. But they never make a joke out of it. That's the thing is there's still a no, sensitivity to it. Even it's though he's not, yeah, it, it, yes, it's, yes. you know, it's, it was the 1930s. It, the, the things were different, and and the treatment of alcoholism was just, hey, don't drink uh, too much, you know. <laughs> and it was 40 years ago when the show came on, exactly. so it was uh, a whole different world too. I do want to mention that in a bit of anachronistic backstory, Jake flew with the Flying Tigers, uh, American pilots who flew for China against the Japanese before the U.S. formally entered World War II. You'll notice that there's an insignia missing from Jake's cap. And in some flashbacks later in the series, you'll see that was the symbol of the Chinese Air Force. But in reality, the show is set in 1938 and the Flying Tigers weren't organized until early 1941. So it's a, it's a slight, maybe it's a slightly old alternate universe there. Yeah, there may be a, a, a lot of alt history going on in this one. There may be. Well, you know, Jake's base is the fictional island of Bora Gora in the South Pacific's Maravella Islands, uh, where he keeps a room above the Monkey Bar, owned by Frenchman Bonchance Louis. The monkey bar is so named for the wood-carved monkeys throughout the establishment. And let's just say, the pilot episode for this, the two-hour pilot, gets to the action right off the bat. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, in the opening, we have... 
two Germans, one played by a young William Forsyth from Out for Justice and The Rock, uh, who, while searching a jungle island for a lost treasure, encounter a group of what seem to be super apes. Yeah, they're like extras from Land of the Lost, for sure. <laughs> oh, I, I, I thought of Land of the Lost. I thought of Congo, uh, you know, clearly. Oh, yes. And, frankly, the Dawn of Man sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Rob, at some point, I will tell you about the TV spinoff that I want to do from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is <laughs> all set during the Dawn of Man era. It's called Moon Watcher. Ooh, <laughs> don't give it away for free. You got to call him. You got to call him Hollywood executives. We're here. We're here. <laughs> Honestly, at first I thought they were like really beating Congo to the punch with a group of highly evolved gorillas guarding a lost treasure. But then I looked it up and discovered that Michael Crichton's novel came out a few years before this. But it's still awesome. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, if this show, if you didn't come into the show expecting Nazis to be bad guys, who boy. Uh, right off the bat, just the <laughs> casual cruelty for absolutely no reason oh, that this no. guy has. Oh, uh, yeah. Where he's just, he is itching to, to you know, gun murder some uh, some giant ape, and it, it backfires. I, I was, I actually said out loud, I hope that ape kills that guy, and you know what? That ape kills that guy. Let's just, you know, that is... That is that is happening. There's some good ape suit stunt work here there with are. like diving into the pool and things. Uh, and the set is, I mean, I assume that's a set and yeah, not real think. life. It, yeah, because it looks, you know, the land of the losty a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But it is, um, it's a great set, great, which, you know, we, we say we love set. building great sets. And then it's just, um, you know, the action level in this thing, as you say, it's just, it's off off the charts to begin right off the bat yeah it's it's fantastic before we go any further we should talk about the incredible theme music from mike post and pete carpenter it is just so good it just sounds like adventure and you know for the kids out there mike post and pete carpenter are responsible for pretty much every great 70s and 80s tv theme you've ever heard including but not limited to the rockford files magnum pi chips the greatest american hero the a-team riptide pete carpenter unfortunately passed away in 1987 from cancer but mike post has continued to compose music for shows including la law quantum leap law and order nypd blue and many many more they're giants yes and this is the first one in this series tales of the gold monkey where it feels like the composers actually had the sound on when they watched raiders of the lost yes. Ark because these guys got they as the internet says they they knew the assignment absolutely it does not sound like a williams ripoff score no but it it has that bombastic adventure feel and it's it's really its own thing but it's in the ballpark which is exactly what you want to do if you are trying to go in a similar direction well so. I, I would make a comparison to Stu Phillips Battlestar Galactic score which is fantastic and evokes John Williams Star Wars but isn't John Williams Star Wars it's evoking no, yeah, that yeah. spirit you know and and this feels very so I'm going to make I, I'll just say at the outset I feel like Tales of 
the Gold Monkey is to Raiders of the Lost Ark what Battlestar Galactica is to Star Wars, and I will be making a lot of comparisons uh, in that in that sense, especially because Don Belisario worked on both shows, and the both shows came from Universal Television and aired on ABC. Uh, so after this opening scene with the Super Monkeys, uh, we are at a poker game where we meet pilot Jake Cutter playing against a German naval officer played by John Hillerman. That's right, folks. Higgins from Magnum P.I. Doing a little doing a little favor for Don Belisario in, in the pilot. And give us the character name. Give us the character name because it's so amazing. The character's name is just Monocle. Monocle. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. Cutter thinks he's got a good hand, but he doesn't have the cash to back it up. So he wagers his dog Jack's false eye, which is an opal with a sapphire center. And of course, he loses. Uh, We then watch Jake and Jack have an argument about it on the dock near the seaplane. And it's just this full-on conversation between Jake and Jack, and it is amazing. What are you upsetting me for? I asked you if you wanted to bet your eye, didn't I? Jack? Jack, stay! Did you hear me? I asked you if you wanted to bet your eye, didn't I? What do you mean, no? I showed you my hand. I said, what do you say? You said, right? Jack, what, what are you trying to pull? Jack, stay. Yes is rough. And no is rough, rough. Right? Huh? Right, so. Jack. What's no? Huh? What do you mean no's rough? Oh, I get it. You're trying to switch signals on me. You want everybody to think I lost your eye again. Well, it won't work. All the world knows, roof is yes, and roof, roof is no. Well, and I, I have to say, because while it is technically a two-hander, it is a dog. So I just want to, <laughs> Stephen Collins does amazing He's in this great. scene. And yeah. If, if I can talk about him for one moment. Sure. Because I liked uh, Selleck's performance, but I thought the way the character was written in High Road, it just wasn't quite in the Indiana Jones realm agreed and then i mean jt striker is his own he's his own thing baby but i would say that collins really gets uh, he's the first one where you feel oh they have actually successfully crafted a main character in the indiana jones mold again this is titled get me another indiana jones because the character is so important right to what the audience latched on to but his mix of um kind of being down to earth he's funny he is still charming, yep. and at the same time, he is often overmatched, but never feels like a dummy for right. being overmatched. It's like it hits all of the all of the indie Venn diagram of character traits. It absolutely, without again feeling like, and it's not a clone though; it's his own thing. No, he's his, its own character, and and it's done really well. I, I, absolutely, one hundred percent. Uh, I want to mention that the plane, uh, Cutter's Goose is the name of the plane. It is a Grumman G21A Goose, hence Cutter's Goose. Uh, And the Grumman Goose has to be the inspiration for the Razor Crest in The Mandalorian. That is basically a goose in space. 
I was obsessed with the Cutter's Goose when I was a kid. It is a great plane. And uh, another uh, little bit of trivia about Cutter's Goose is that it is everything in the plane is controlled by one single lever that's on the ceiling above the pilot. <laughs> everything you need to do, True. you just move that one metal lever back and forth. It does everything. 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 Absolutely. Um, now, Jake is accompanied by his Jack Russell Terrier, Jack, uh, who is described in the series Bible as like an 80-year-old man who's seen enough of the world and ridiculous things that people insist on doing to pretty much see what's next. He won't forgive Jake for losing his opal and sapphire eye, and Jake wants to get it back, although according to the series Bible, that will never happen. Mm. If the show, you know, the show had gone on, the eye would drift through the Marvellas as a talisman that grows more and more valuable and legendary as it moves from sailor to witch doctor to heiress to who knows who. Wow. that's And for viewers who have not, or listeners, I guess who aren't yet viewers of Tales of the Gold Monkey, I know that you hear that description of the character of the dog, Jack, and you go, well, that's a bit much. Let me tell you and assure you, they nail it. And that is exactly- They nail it. You, you 100%. Get it. You, that is who that character is when you watch it. Like, I, yes. It is <laughs> fan. Fantastic. Jake soon encounters Sarah Stickney White and her handsy manager, Sam. She is a singer, and an altercation occurs between this manager, Sam, and Jake, and we get a pretty good fist fight between Sam and Jake. Um, Belisario wrote that if this was a 1930s film, Jake would be one part Gable, one part Bogart, one part Spencer Tracy, and two parts Jimmy Stewart. And, and Jake, it's, he's a classic Belisario leading man. He's got the military background, the voiceover narration. Uh, in some ways, he feels like a 1930s version of Thomas Magda. Yeah, and uh, I know it's not 1930s era, but to me, he's got maybe, uh, you know, to do some extra parts. I think there's at least a part and a half of William Holden in there. Sure, um, I could see that. Yeah, it's absolutely. And he's, you know, as as the fight ensues, he's got this great line in the voiceover where he talks about his impulse to help others. You may think this silly, but ever since I can remember, I had this urge to be a a knight. Well, not in armor or anything like that, just in spirit. You know, to help the helpless, to find the wrong and right it. Then somewhere around 13 or 14, it sort of all became an urge to save beautiful damsels in distress. I just wish somewhere in all those books I read about knights and dragons, they'd have warned me about damsels wearing little straw hats. This line, this is pure Donald Belisario right here. Like this is this is the the summation of the type of leading characters he creates. Yeah, and you know, this is the kind that he's a little rascally, right? And definitely more rascally yeah. than Indiana Jones is presented. Oh yeah. You know, maybe in in his past he was a little more rascally, but not now, right? But, you know, with with uh Cutter here, he is definitely Got a little bit of a of a edge. He's you know clearly portrayed as a, a bit of a womanizer, and yet 
he's not an asshole. <laughs> Which no. you know, there's no. a line. The manager's an asshole, but yeah. he's he's all right. Yeah, there's something about it. There's a line him. that doesn't seem to be crossed. You know, where you're you never you know he never harms anyone. You know, with his well, and he actions. comes to the woman's rescue. I mean, that's the thing. You know, he comes to he thinks he's coming to her aid. He ends up getting hit in the head with a bottle of champagne for his trouble. But yeah. you know, again, that's that's because a classic Belisario right there as well. Like, oh well, now that's now that's happened because I stuck my nose in. Like, yeah, that's... and he and he made assumptions about what she needed, and he was completely wrong. Because her manager, after this altercation, her manager ends up taking a boat to Bora Gora, and Jake ends up giving a flight to Sarah Stickney White, a singer by trade. What Jake doesn't realize is that Sarah Stickney White and her manager are in reality American spies. And she is, in fact, a graduate of Vassar, class of 34. Yeah, and uh, again, uh, I mentioned this to my wife, who graduated from Vassar, and I said, oh, yeah, it's that thing from back in the day where they use, you know, graduated from Vassar as shorthand. And she said, oh, yeah, to like signify a strong, uh, you know, capable woman. And I and I did have to joke and say, no, I think they do it to signify she's a handful. <laughs> this is not my opinion, but the show no, of no, the early this is 80s. Just, it's the conventions of the time. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Caitlin O'Heaney is good as Sarah. I I kept watching her and thinking, I wonder if the role was originally meant for Leslie Ann Warren, because she even kind of looks like Leslie Ann Warren. And I'm like, oh, but she's good. Like, she, she's good in the role. She's got oh, good yeah. chemistry with Stephen Collins. She gives it back to him, but they're both in kind of the same land where it's, it feels, and I know that they're, they're setting it up to be romantic, but it, it feels more like, uh, you know, joshing each other like a brother and sister or i guess like uh you know a couple where it does feel it's got more of that his girl friday yes as opposed to uh like you know being mean to each other really being that the series is set in the pacific in the years prior to world war ii there are a mix of both german and japanese adversaries one of the principal german agents on the series has a cover as the reverend willie tenboom on bora gora and the German arrives at the Japanese headquarters for a meeting, and the soldier who brought him there immediately has his head cut off by being for being late. And it's admittedly, uh, there's some broad stereotypes here. And, you know, if you're doing this show today, which I would kill to do, Rob, <laughs> I'd kill to do a new Tales of the Gold Monkey, but you'd probably do something a little bit more evolved in terms of the portrayal of both the Germans and the Japanese. You, you probably also wouldn't cast a white lady as a Japanese lady. Yes, that's... You know what? I am a fan of Marta Dubois. She appeared in dozens of TV shows in the 80s and 90s, including a very memorable role on Star Trek The Next Generation as Ardra, a woman who claimed to be the devil in the episode Devil's Do, uh, but she's not Japanese. Not remotely. That said, according to the series Bible, her character is the daughter of an Irish sea captain and a Japanese princess who was cast out by her family. Okay, so that even they knew that they had to have an explanation <laughs> for it. But, uh, yeah. And look, you know, again, 40 years ago, uh, context is everything. Uh, but, yes. it, you know, it, it goes with saying that uh, her character is 100% the dragon woman stereotype in every yes. respect. And I, she absolutely is. I won't need to belabor the point, but 
Don't yeah. be surprised, you, do, you know, when you if you, you watch do it. it a little differently today, which, again, takes nothing away from her acting, her performance, because I really like her. You know, she reminds me uh, the dynamic between her and her second in command, Toto, uh, not Toto like the dog, T-O-D-O. Uh, they have a similar dynamic to Princess Ardala and Kane from Buck Rogers yeah. in the 25th century. Yeah. And I don't need to tell you how big of a Princess Ardala fan I am. Uh, that has been well established on this series prior to today. But Tales of the Gold Monkey family show, so you don't get uh, weird bikinis uh, in this one. No, no, no. She's in a hot tub when you first meet her. And it's just, again, it's it's network, early 80s network implication of, oh, wow. Um, here's the thing about the Princess Koji and, and Toto. I wonder if they were late additions to the pilot. Because they have literally no contact with anyone else in the episode aside from Reverend Tenbu. Uh, Koji talks about knowing and having romantic designs on Jay Cutter, but they are literally never in the same scene. And I wonder if these were characters were added in reshoots in order to set them up as recurring adversaries for the series. Oh, that would make sense. It would also make sense that it just, <laughs> you know, it was the early 80s. <laughs> Everyone was moving fast. Everybody was moving fast. And Princess Koji tells us about the legend of the gold monkey, a golden idol as large as a house that is guarded by giant monkeys. Not only that, Rob, the, the gold is actually an alloy that can withstand extreme heat. So the Nazis want it so they can make gold super rockets. That's the kind of show we're in, Rob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know... It is amazing as part of listing off when they're poo-pooing the idea of the gold monkey. Yeah. They do list yeah. uh, other... King Solomon's Mines. Yeah, yeah. And the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Absolutely. They they go there. So they're, they're letting you know what they're doing, which they didn't need to because it was already obvious. They didn't yeah. need to. But, you know, hey, listen... It's okay by me. It's just the television conventions of the time. Having fun. <laughs> Jake and Sarah fly to Bora Gora, but they lose an engine along the way, which forces them to dump the plane's cargo. And this is one of several scenes where the tension comes out of the question of, is the goose going to be able to land safely or not? But of course... It does. On Bora Gora, we meet Jake's mechanic and friend Corky, played by Jeff McKay, and Bon Chance Louis, the proprietor of the Monkey Bar, played here by Ron Moody. Uh, Jeff McKay is terrific as the kind-hearted but forgetful Corky. He's just great in this. Absolutely. He's like the perfect sidekick. I, I, I really yeah. don't know how else to say it. And then uh, Bon Chance Louis is the perfect bar owner-operator, although I guess, you know, Rodney McDowell became more perfect, but the character, and it is, um, this is also where you talked. I mean, this is total Casablanca vibes in this bar yeah. set. I mean, for both of them. I think you hear, you must remember this. I think uh, it's yes, playing yes. on the piano in the Bunky Bar when they first go in. I want to mention Ron Moody, by the way, was offered the role of the doctor on Doctor Who after Patrick Troughton left the series, he turned it down and the part went to John Pertwee and he later said he regretted not taking the role. Oh, man, I bet. I mean, he would have been the groovy doctor? Yeah. With the cape? Yeah. He didn't know that. They didn't know that that was what it was going to be. And I can't imagine anybody else but John Pertwee as the third doctor. Oh, no. But, you know, Rod Moody was their first choice and he turned them down. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the cape... 
the cape for Doctor Three and like <laughs> Doctor Ten, the Tenth Doctor's suit are like kind of tied yeah. for my uh, the suit with the chucks. John Pertwee is actually my wife's favorite classic Doctor of all of them, more okay. than more than Tom yeah. Baker. Speaking of things we like, I love the Monkey Bar set. Oh my God, it is one of the best sets I've ever scene yeah i really wish that either this show or our podcast was more popular because <laughs> someone in la needs to do the fucking pop-up bar of oh the gold God. monkey bar and i will just live there until it shuts down yeah no yes. it's it's amazing and and i i love it i want to live there i want to yeah i want to i want to listen we would knock a remake of tales of the gold monkey out of the park and we'd start by recreating the monkey bar <laughs> Tales of the Gold Monkey was primarily shot on the Universal lot, with some location shooting in Hawaii for the pilot. Because when this time with TV, whereas feature films like Raiders of the Lost Ark could shoot all over the globe, television didn't have that luxury. So they did all kinds of things to be able to shoot it on the Universal lot and give a sense of scope and place to Bora Gora. They employed legendary matte painting artist Albert Whitlock, who worked for films ranging from Earthquake to Dune, as well as the original series of Star Trek, as well as numerous Walt Disney films. He helped design Disneyland, by the way. Mm. The exterior of the Monkey Bar was originally built for 1981 TV movie The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. And then it was redressed the following year for Tales of the Gold Monkey. Wow, man. I mean, that is some deep cuts. The original surrounding backlot was transformed into Bora Gora. There was a dock built out onto Park Lake on the Universal lot, which, with the use of clever photography and editing, was made to look like the plane was moored off a South Pacific island. And the Monkey Bar exterior was actually on wheels so it could be moved out of the area so they could use the surrounding jungle area for other jungle locations. And the Monkey Bar was used for all sorts of other TV shows, including Knight Rider and Simon and Simon, and was still standing. You could still see it on the Universal Tour up until 2009. Ooh, boy. And uh, I don't, I don't want to jump the gun, but boy, oh boy, Chris, this sounds very expensive. <laughs> network television you you were drawing your battlestar galactica parallels earlier well, yes. i think that there may be another parallel to come with well that. absolutely yeah and and actually the budget for this episode the budget for the series was nine hundred thousand dollars per episode which was gargantuan for the early 80s and apparently they frequently exceeded that i believe it i mean there's there are a lot of locations and a lot of sets in this thing and it is uh yeah, I, I when I was watching it with these eyes, uh, <laughs> these wizened old eyes, I was like, because I I thought I remembered it. It had a lot of press and stuff back. Oh yeah, day, no, it was a big, it was it a was, big show. Yeah, it did not. Uh, did well, not last. We'll get we'll we'll get to that. It but it did there. well. It just it it's one of those things that like Battlestar Galactica, it had to be an out of the park home run, and yeah. it was or the Flash, cool. yeah, the the yeah. Uh, '90s Flash. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. I think of this era of television, like from the '60s through the '90s, and for me, I think in many ways, it's like movies under the studio system of the 30s 40s and 50s i think in both instances you have a massive amount of product being created in an almost factory type system and while that can lead to sort of some mediocrity or sameness sometimes within that magic can happen 
and you can get these these terrific things because you're just making so much. And, you know, I, I think Tales of the Gold Monkey is one of those. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, it's not like Sturgeon's Law has gone away. No. Or no. Uh, it, it, it exists in almost all eras. Um, it's just, you know, the good stuff is usually different from, from time period and time period. Absolutely. Jake soon learns that someone sabotaged his port engine on the, on the flight, but nevertheless agrees to fly back to the volcanic island that he dropped the cargo over in order to try and recover some of it. And in the pilot episode, it's interesting, we have two different German villains. We have Reverend Tenboom, who is a member of the Wehrmacht, which is the regular German military, and he was a series regular. And then we have the Gestapo agent, Monaco, played by John Hillerman, who was a one-off bad guy for the pilot. And it's interesting that there's tension between the two of them as sort of the best way to go about things. And Tenboom actually has a line late in the show, never trust the Gestapo. And there's this shot in the in the when they're down in his like secret lair where there's there's a picture of Hitler on the wall and he looks over at John Hillerman and he looks just like him. He's got his mustache styled just like him. And there's there's interesting stuff that I think might have happened with with Ten Boom as the series went on and where his loyalties really may have lay. Yeah, I mean, they set him up and, you know, look, this isn't necessarily uh, a modern storyline either, but the way that he is with one of the locals, uh, yeah, well, clearly yeah. having a sexual relationship. Under uh, the guise know, of being a reverend at that. <laughs> yeah. And he's also, um, you know, shocked at what the incident with the cobra or whatever, yeah, the snake, yeah, was, right, earlier. So he's shocked by the violence of his Japanese counterparts as well. Yes. And so he's, uh, but he's also kind of portrayed at times almost like comic relief yeah. amongst the bad guys. Yeah. You know, it doesn't go past a certain point, but he is definitely, it's not like Hogan's Heroes Land. No. But it, it's, no. it's um, you know, it's, it's pointing that way a little. Absolutely. Things get a little confusing when the Gestapo agent ends up flying on Jake's plane and Jake lets him do so in order to try and get back Jack's eye. But Jake knows the Gestapo agent is lying about having the eye and isn't actually going where he claims to be anyway. Uh, but anyway, you know, you have Jake and Jack and Sarah and Monocle all flying to the island, while at the same time, Princess Koji and, and Tenboom are headed to the same island, although they will never actually meet. And I did think hysterical the image of two guys in full samurai armor hacking through the jungle was just i, I laughed my ass off that was the funniest thing i've seen i mean clearly japanese soldiers did not dress in full samurai armor in world war ii in the pacific but my god it was funny yeah they needed the the history channel back then they would have seen a million documentaries <laughs> uh that would have shown uh, the outfits were quite different. I think they yeah. got those costumes from Shogun. They borrowed them from the miniseries Shogun a few years earlier. Yeah, maybe that's where the the, the studio uh, stamped out the budget. They're like, we don't have money for Japanese army costumes. Just use the Shogun warrior. <laughs> you can yes. get the Shogun stuff cheap. Uh, Tenbu is looking for the Bibles that Jack had to drop over the island because they apparently hold the key to finding the island of the gold monkey. And just as he's explaining that, oh, wait, they're on it. You know, they don't oh, wait. This is the island we needed to be on. There we go. Oh, and the island is volcanic and getting ready to erupt. Yeah, yeah. Jake Cutter, 
the original John Wick, willing to (laughs) fly into a volcano to get his dog's eye back. Absolutely. And, and so we have this sort of race against time. The, the island's gonna gonna explode. Jake, Jack, and Sarah and Monocle are all trying to find the gold monkey. They don't find a gold monkey the size of a house, but they find a much smaller one. There's a great fight, like by the the waterfall set that we saw earlier. Absolutely. Jake dives right in. It's it's really fun. And uh, Jake, Sarah, and Jack escape the island before the volcano blows. They get back to Bora Gora. They start. They have their cleaning off the monkey statue with Bonchance Louis, only to realize brass monkey. It's a brass that monkey. Funky monkey. <laughs> <laughs> the title of the show was apparently originally going to be Tales of the Brass Monkey, but it was changed to avoid legal complications with a beverage company that ran a series of ads featuring a bar called the Brass Monkey in the late seventies. Go figure. Wow. <laughs> I I just think you would avoid calling it Tales of the Brass Monkey so that you wouldn't title it You're the Hunter from the Future. It's like, <laughs> you gotta, it's, it, it don't spoil your own ending. Don't, don't it's spoil the pilot, the man. But of course, there's a twist in the twist when the final shot, we cut back to the island of the super monkeys and there's a giant gold monkey the size of a house that the apes are actually living in and can withstand the heat of the lava. So the tale of the gold monkey was actually true. And I can't quite explain it, but that final shot with those monkeys living in the (laughs) gold monkey terrifying it was yeah (laughs) nightmare fuel (laughs) oh my god i would want nothing to do with that island ever no i love it i love it i'm I'm going to the monkey island i'm I'm, i'll take my chances i uh, you know let's uh i'll be back at the bar (laughs) (laughs) bon chance robbie (laughs) (laughs) that is fantastic unfortunately much like it's it's sort of cousin series Battlestar Galactica Tales of the Gold Monkey was canceled after a single season as I said before it did reasonably well ratings wise but like Battlestar and as you said like the Flash it was just too expensive to justify the costs and the numbers weren't there and moreover apparently airing on ABC didn't necessarily help the situation according to actor Jeff McKay Back then, the networks had personalities, and ABC had an urban one. NBC was the father of Bonanza and Little House on the Prairie, and actually would have been the perfect network for us, but we were stuck on ABC, and it was a difficult marriage, to say the least. Ah, well, when you're a little kid just flipping through TV Guide, I didn't care what (laughs) brand identity a network had. I just flipped it on. I absolutely. it's, It's fantastic. And honestly, despite some of the dated elements of the show... Uh, I think it's delightful, and I am definitely going to watch more episodes. Now, I can do this because I have the complete series on DVD. I bought it a while back and just hadn't gotten to it before now. But what amazes me is that this show isn't available for streaming anywhere, not even for rental or purchase or anything like that. I, I am mystified by the way streaming has evolved because... Let me tell you, Universal Television has one of the best catalogs of TV shows, especially in terms of shows from the 70s and 80s. I mean, Columbo, The Rockford Files, The A-Team, Knight Rider, Miami Vice, the list goes on. And it is beyond my understanding why those shows are not all available on Peacock. A couple of them are, but most of them aren't. And it is 
a complete and total mystery to me. Uh, I mean, you know, who knows? Uh, I'm sure that the 82, the contracts probably would have already taken into account physical home media, certainly not streaming. And these are all the same companies that are taking off shows that they just produced for a tax write-off. It makes no sense. Makes no sense to me. They, they just don't want a big library. I, you know, the, the cost is too much for them. I don't know why you wouldn't want the biggest library possible, especially if it's stuff you already own. Like, it's one thing I get, oh, you know, hey, we're paying for this. We're licensing it from someone else and we're paying for it. And, and it's not doing the numbers we want. And so we're not going to renew that license. I get that. But if you just own it, Outright, it's you're not even licensing it to somebody else. It's not like it's oh, it's available on Tubi or something like that. Uh, it, it it is one of those things that is absolutely a mystery to me. But that's the way that's the way it is. That's the way it is in 2023. Uh, now, Rob, I have one last piece of trivia for Tales of the Gold Monkey. Do you know who was the original choice to play the role of Jake Cutter? I have no idea. It was none other than the star of the second series we'll be discussing today, Bruce Boxleitner. Ah! And while the producers originally pursued Boxleitner, his agent had a deal with CBS. And as such, he ended up starring in a very similar series that premiered just two days later. Bring him back alive. Tuesday, welcome back to Singapore, where Frank Buck's adventures lead him into the arms of his deadliest enemies yet. Bring Him Back Alive, Tuesday. This is CBS. Bring Him Back Alive is loosely, very loosely, based on real-life big-game trapper Frank Buck. In the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, Buck made numerous trips to Asia for the purpose of capturing and collecting animals for zoos and circuses across America. He curated animal expositions for both the 1934 and 1939 World's Fairs. In 1930, he published the first of several books chronicling, and some would say exaggerating, his exploits entitled Bring Him Back Alive. That book was made into a film of the same name in which Frank Buck played himself. And he subsequently starred in seven other films between 1934 and 1949. It's so weird. He's like the egotistical adventure version of the Crap Brothers. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) Bring It Back Alive, the television series, was produced by Columbia Pictures Television and broadcast on CBS. It was created by George Schneck and Frank Cardia. Now, Schneck wrote Future World, the 1976 sequel to Michael Crichton's film Westworld, and this will really bake your noodle. In 2016, decades after Bring Him Back Alive, the two men became the showrunners of the CBS series NCIS, a show created by Donald Belisario. Wow, this is a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The world is a strange place. The show starred Bruce Boxleitner, Cindy Morgan, Clyde Katsusu, Ron O'Neill, that's Superfly, folks, as well as Sean McClory and John A.Z. In the series, set in 1939, Frank Buck is based out of Singapore and lives at the Raffles Hotel, a real hotel in Singapore that is still in operation today. Wow. Uh, it's very similar show to, to Tales of the Gold Monkey, but perhaps the slightly less colorful version. It, it felt a little flattered to me, to be perfectly honest. Well, and I just want to, before we even get into that, 
Um, oh, sorry, I'm bringing out the big board here, Chris. Oh, oh the please. acting big board. Oh, yeah, it's okay, rare that okay, the big so board comes had, out. Uh, oh boy, it's coming out. Uh, okay, yeah, Bruce Boxleitner and Cindy Morgan both appeared in Tron in our Get Me Another Star Wars. So yep, uh, just putting another tick mark up here. And Ron O'Neill, priest and Superfly. Yep, also a detective in When a Stranger Calls. So I'm just oh, marking that's him right. up here as well. Oh my goodness. So we've got. Uh, okay, let me wheel it back. Okay, you know, it it's that's okay, 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 okay. All right, I had to take care of that while we're here. I was going to mention the Tron thing. That was the same year as Bring Them Back Alive, both in 1982. And their chemistry is still good. Yeah. I mean, they have they have good chemistry in Tron. They have good chemistry in Bring Them Back Alive. Yeah. I like this show quite a bit. It only suffers by comparison to Tales of the Gold Monkey, which uh, appeared at the same time. But uh, that's not to say we don't have some good stuff here. I mean, we open with one of the best title quotes I've ever seen, <laughs> where you have a German, again, the bad guys here are German and Japanese, hunting a tiger, and Frank captures it first, so it won't be killed. Who the hell do you think you are? Frank Buck. Now I set that trap, so that's my tiger. Nobody does this to Hans Heinrich, Mr. Buck. I've been tracking that beast for days. I'm not going to let you get the kill. I don't kill, Mr. Heinrich. I bring him back alive. I love that the opening credits tell you not only the actors and their characters' names, but they give a brief description of each character. So like Cindy Morgan as Gloria Marlowe, United States Consul, Singapore. John Z as G.B. Von Turgo, smuggler and kingpin of the Singapore underworld. And uh, just because we were bringing it up, uh, oh man, there's also one title card that, again, uh, if you wanted your casual racism of the early 80s. Yeah, Clyde Katsusu as Ali, Buck's friend and number one boy. And let me assure you that Clyde is nowhere close to the age of an actual child. He is a full-grown and capable man. <laughs> it's so weird. Be I mean, he's, he's fine in it, and uh, it's just the framing of it, because yeah. his character doesn't do that many, like, totally crazy things no he's just he's, he's frank's assistant basically you know running, the, yeah. running the, the 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 zoo thing it's not as bad as that card would have you believe yeah. it, it's not great but it's you no know. you wouldn't do it now for sure <laughs> no, no what i do love again is something else you wouldn't do now but i kind of wish you would is that these credits are what i call the ohi opening credits where you get a brief oh, shot yeah. of the character going about his or her business and then they see the camera and smile and nod or something like someone just came into the room and they're like oh hi <laughs> yeah they're not exactly breaking the fourth wall but it feels like they're like gussying it up a little yeah. right they're like <laughs> polishing the fourth wall for us the pilot episode revolves around an american spy who is carrying secret japanese plans for the invasion of malaysia when his plane goes down in a remote part of the jungle u.s consul gloria marlowe hires frank buck to track down the plane and find the american agent and we're told right from the start that Frank is a ladies' man. You know, they even there's even a line like, he traps animals and women too, or something along those lines. Which is uh, a little bit, see, this is a little bit further into the rascal territory than uh, yeah. Jake Cutter was. 
But, but what I find funny about Bring Him Back Alive is the show handicaps him from the very start by giving him uh, a steady girlfriend. So in order for him to romance the love interest of the week or pursue the will-they-won't-they relationship with Gloria Marlowe, he has to avoid and put off his girlfriend, Amelia St. George, played by Arthur Two on the Rocks actor, Cynthia Sykes. Yeah, he pretty much sends her packing right away in this episode. They, they set her up to knock her down. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like pretty instantly. And, and I think the producers realized it was a misstep fairly quickly because judging from IMDb, the character doesn't appear in any subsequent episodes. Yeah, and, uh, and I just, as, as long as we're talking about the characters and their setup, so Frank, the whole concept of bring him back alive. Yes. It, it, the, in that beginning scene that you talked about and then throughout this thing, it really is... And look, it's 1982 again. Yes. It is held up as this is like a save the cat character quality. Yeah. Like he's not a big game hunter who's going to murder these animals. He's amazingly humane. He just captures them and forces them into like Ringling Brothers animal slavery. (laughs) Yes. Obviously, zoos and animal expositions have come into question in terms of ethics in the years since. Um And so that whole, honestly, that whole aspect of the character feels more like a hindrance because he keeps having to leave his his zoo business in order to go do the adventure of the week. It's more of a hindrance. Yes. And and I guess, you know, hey, listen, I suppose trapping animals is better than killing them, but the whole thing feels unethical from the contemporary lens. Yeah, which is fine. I, I uh, honestly, uh, and and look, don't don't flame me, Peta, or anything. <laughs> but in the context of this show, just I found it more comical. Yeah, that it was like, oh, he is a paragon of virtue because uh, he's sending elephants to Ringling Brothers. You know, like I've seen those documentaries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a moment early in the pilot where I I actually thought the show was going for the kind of go for broke absurdness that I found so endearing in Tales of the Gold Monkey. And it's it's the best act out in the history of television. It is the is, best act yes. out in the history of television <laughs> yes. ever. <laughs> An unknown person in what appears to be an attempt to murder Frank gives a monkey a gun and sends him into Frank's room while he's in the bathtub. And I'm like, yes, this is what I am looking for in a show like this. I'm going to belabor this. Uh, not only does, when he sends him in, this this room of Frank's has a transom above the door. That's yes. one of those little windows that can tilt open, old-timey style. Yeah. Well, they didn't have air conditioning, so you need to let, you know, yeah. air, fresh air let into the, the room. Out. Yeah. Yeah, and let the heat out. Uh, so that's the monkey holding the gun climbs through the transom. And then, uh, you know what, Frank's taking a bath. He's taking a bath. He's washing the jungle off. And he just is sitting there. And then the monkey comes in and he goes, I, I, he says something to the monkey. And the monkey raises the gun <laughs> to murder him. And that is the act out. Is him, free, Frank, freaking out because a monkey is pointing a gun at him while he is in the bathtub. And I just, I could not be, it is the greatest act it's out. It's the greatest act out in television history that's it. I mean, the, you know, I mean, that's amazing. Unfortunately, it all turns out to be a practical joke by Frank's friend H.H., the Sultan of Johor, played by Superfly actor Ron O'Neill. Uh, what's funny is that the Sultan of Johor was a real person and was, in real life, close friends with the real Frank Buck. Uh, that said, Ron O'Neill, who is really good in this show, 
isn't Southeast Asian. He is not of Southeast Asian extraction. And it's a situation similar to that of Princess Koji in Tales of the Gold Monkey, perhaps made more acute by the fact that this character was actually a real historical person. Yeah, uh, you know, it is the... Uh, it's television of the time. The woof. Woof nature. Yeah. 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 We have this situation where Gloria is going to find, she's like, she's told that the only person who can go that deep into the jungle is Frank Buck. So she's going to find him and she's driving in her car and she swerves off the road and into a crocodile filled lake, which gives Frank the opportunity to rescue her from the roof of her sinking car. Which, yeah, speaking of, of its time, I wanted to mention this because it, it's it's less it's less severe in Tales of the Gold Monkey, but it is similar where both of these shows set up uh, ostensibly, you know, liberated can do women who yes. are on the move and so capable and they talk a good game and then they have them do something incredibly dumb so they can be rescued uh, so that they must be saved. Yeah. 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 They, they, it's like when push comes to shove, they they it's all lip service. Universal television, that is something else we would do different in our Tales of the Gold Monkey revival. Uh, trust us, we, we would do a much better job at that. Yeah, if she's going to be a spy, she's going to be a good one. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, exactly that. But, you know, he, he rescues her from the top of the car. He uses the, the rope like Indiana Jones uses the whip. Although it is somewhat less exciting. <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> just a little less exciting. <laughs> Not as exciting as, just a little less exciting than Raiders <sighs> of the Lost Ark. And Frank journeys into the jungle to find the down plane and the lost spy. And at the same time, Von Turgo, the, the uh, kingpin of the Singapore underworld, is tasked by the Japanese to track down the same individual. And Von Turgo actually in turn hires the German hunter from the opening scene to actually go find the guy. Now, Von Turgo is kind of an interesting but not quite effective character. Like, he's described as the kingpin of the Singapore underworld, but he doesn't seem to have many people working for him. He's got one underling uh, uh, who is clearly intended to be a Peter Lorre-type character, but Von Turgo seems to want to get rid of him. And he does have a secret room, which is straight out of a Batman 66 villain's lair, which can be opened with a cane. It's really, it puts the cane in, into the, the wall and, it, and, the, and the room opens uh, and it contains a radio over which he seems to do nearly all of his business. Like it's just, he's on the radio with people all day long. It's, it, I, there was a very Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget <laughs> quality yeah. to this kingpin of the underworld. And it's so weird too. Like it felt like they were ambiguous at times, even though with the, with the name Von Turgo, but it felt like they were also trying to, at times pretend like he was Italian and Mussolini. Like I, like I, like I, it's like, what, what is going on it, here? It's strange. And, and you know, the, the main issue with Von Turgo is that he's got no color. He's got no, no likability. Like if you think about Sydney Greenstreet in the Maltese Falcon, he was a villain, but he was a really interesting and fun character as well. And they clearly wanted to create that type of character, but instead he comes off as sort of one note and kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah, more Dr. Cyclops than uh, than <laughs> Sidney Greenstreet, for sure. Frank, Gloria, and Ollie are then captured by the German, uh, and they but they're able to escape, and Frank pursues him deep into the jungle, and there's a moment where Frank finds the German 
and he leaps at him head first from the top of a cliff. It is this incredible stunt where he's going head first into the guy. And frankly, all the German need to do is to step to the side. And that would have been it for Frank. It's a long fall. Long. Like it is an incredible stunt. Like, holy shit. Yeah. But there is, would be plenty of time to, yeah, take, (laughs) Two steps back, and then Frank's done. Done. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's over. The the one thing I did dislike about that particular stunt was the lack of a sound effect when he made the leap. That's the only. I was I was a little disappointed, but maybe I'll maybe I'll throw that into an edit and throw it up somewhere. (laughs) We have a pretty good fist fight between the two. Frank wins, but then finds himself surrounded by the indigenous tribe in the area who are not friendly to outsiders. And they've already captured Gloria and Ali, but all three are saved by the native boy, who's been watching the whole time and convinces the tribe to let Frank and company go. Now, that is one way to describe it, Chris, and you're being very kind. I will... uh... I want to give a little more detail because when uh, they are captured and the young boy comes up there, you know, to uh, talk and save them. Imagine, if you will, a like, I think, 18 minute exposition scene (laughs) where you just have the indigenous folks talking in their language and the boys talking to the elders. And then Frank... Is translating, translating in, in baseball. Kind of. Like he's giving yeah. baseball analogies. He's like, "Oh, it's you know, it's 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 three outs and one, you know, like it's it's hysterical." <laughs> oh, we got the razzmatazz and the skimmeradu, and she's like, "Oh, oh no!" He's like, "Oh wait, now I hear the the balloons getting blown up. I think we're oh wait." Oh. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's it, it it really is. It really is. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and while while Tales of the Gold Monkey had a two hour long pilot episode, Bring It Back Alive opened with two one hour episodes connected by a cliffhanger. At the end of the pilot, Frank learns that the Sultan has been kidnapped, leading into episode two. And you know, it's again, it, Bring It Back Alive is good. It's a solid show for that time. It's just. Tales of the Gold Monkey is sublime, and and it's only in the comparison uh, that that Bring Them Back Alive suffers. I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, one of these shows is had a whole DVD box set released, and one of these shows, uh, you can go to Internet Archive where somebody's VHS tape has been uploaded. Yeah, and you know, it's a shame because they should, if nothing else, even if you don't touch the whole series. I need the 4K film scan <laughs> of the greatest act out in television history. Oh, yeah. No, it is. You will believe a monkey can fire a gun at a man. <laughs> yes. You won't believe a monkey can threaten a man in a bathtub with a gun. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and like Tales of the Gold Monkey, Bring It Back Alive was canceled after one season. It's not available on any streaming platform. We found it on the internet. Uh, they're both worth checking out, but I think... Tales of the Gold Monkey is sort of the richer, the richer show. Yeah, uh, yeah, because Gold Monkey uh, seemed to have uh, just faster pacing, yeah. better movement, 
And even I think in the the editing of the scenes, you know, which are all a little a little slower paced for the modern era, but uh, Gold Monkey, it, it felt like a little snappier just uh, between the characters within a scene as yeah. well. You know, just even with the dialogue. But they're both they're both interesting, and and again, you know, I I, I recommend checking them out, especially to see how. Hollywood was reacting to the success of Raiders of the Lost Ark and it's like oh hey some of the first things to kind of be in that in that vein are the television iterations of that concept that Steven Spielberg did with Raiders of the Lost Ark you know it's just it's really they're really interesting to watch yeah. and and you know they're fun yeah I mean and, and I know that Tales of the Gold Monkey was an older thing although I'm sure they you know did some edit you know some rewrites or whatever but uh these do feel like the first two that it's far enough because TV moves faster, these feel like the ones that they actually are trying to be a little more in the mold. Uh, High Road felt like, you know, it was a pre-existing project that they just kind of marketed. Yeah, the thing we have off the shelf that we can, oh, hey, that that can be, uh, you know. Yeah, and then Treasure of the Four Crowns is just a, a goddamn miracle. It's just its own bag, baby. It's just its own bag. But clearly not a full-on Raiders uh, inspired. Well, it had its moments, but then it then there were other moments where yeah. it was uh, a work of just heads will spin. Heartbreak. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! Still haven't gotten over that. My god! But I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. Be sure to come back next week when we'll be joined by Jason Kleberg of the Force 5 podcast to discuss one of the most critically and commercially successful adventure films to follow in the wake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Robert Zemeckis' 1984 film, Romancing the Stone, as well as its sequel, The Jewel of the Nile. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies. Tell that monkey with a gun who's threatening you in the bathtub. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. Another.